Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I am your host. Today, we are graced with the presence of Andre Arsenault, or Joey, depending on which city you know him from. Andre graduated with distinction from the University of Alberta, earning his Bachelor's of Education, specializing in elementary. Before becoming a teacher, Andre had a successful volleyball career at both the collegiate and university level. Attending Medicine Hat College and McEwen University, Andre accrued a plethora of awards for his contributions as a student athlete, as well as an academic and a leader. Andre is a mentor, a coach, educator, writer, yoga teacher, and a philosopher. He's also a public speaker and advocate for the LGBTQ community. Andre cultures both passion and discipline towards the growth and development of the self with his constant pursuit towards excellence. He speaks through metaphors and analogy that are both poetic and inspirational, allowing you to foster a clear understanding of your inner and outer environment as if they were one and the same. It were these traits and many more that allowed him to be selected as a keynote speaker for the 2020 Vancouver Island Leadership Conference and to finally culminate as the next guest on our podcast. Thanks, Andre. Okay, I hit the I hit the red button, so now we're doing it. We're live. <laughs> yeah, we're doing it live. Yeah, exactly. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. I'm glad that you were able to do it today rather than yesterday. I went to the the zoo and it was a a nice day out. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, I'm lucky. I'm in in Lethbridge right now, and it's like ten degrees outside. But I know back home in Edmonton, it's a blizzard. So the contrast alone makes me feel a little bit better being here in Lethbridge than being in Edmonton. So when did when did you move to Lethbridge? How long have you been there? Um, so I've been in Lethbridge starting in August. I came a month early because my teaching contract started in September, but you know me, I'm a little OCD, so I wanted to keep uh, the pressure off. So I came to Lethbridge in August and then coaching started at the college in um, September as well. So Took that month, a little break to get used to the city, tried to fake being a local as much as I could. And then uh, once I did everything you could do in Lethbridge, so after two days, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, and then just started work. So the rest is history. But I'm here until the end of June for sure. And then contemplating staying here for summer or going back home, that's still undecided. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. And how's the teaching been? Are you guys still practicing at the college or is that all shut down? And how is in-class COVID? What are the precautions like? Such loaded questions. Let's start with school. School's been great. I mean, we started off with, um, I had 24 kids in my class. I now have 30. So wow. uh, it grows, but um, this is my first year teaching. So my first year teaching is I've gotten five or six new students. I'm teaching during a pandemic, uh, doing it all while I'm coaching at the college. and trying to stay sane um but it's been good we, um my class has been very good and i think it's because um they're scared of me which i think is a good thing i think as a first year teacher because usually it's the opposite but no we have a good classroom culture going on in here and they understand the kids under, actually understand what it means to be good classroom citizens and keeping others safe so i think i've been lucky with that i know other um classes in our schools haven't been so lucky so uh, but teaching aspect has been great um, learning lots as you go you, you think you know a lot about people and a lot about kids and then you're always humbled and it happens on a daily basis and I think I love that the most is just recognizing 
um, you'll be close with a kid one day and all of a sudden they hate you the next day. And the next day they love you again. And then you just like, and you just ride it. You just ride with the flow and recognize it actually has nothing to do with you at all. And it's just that kid going through their own thing. And I wish I knew that when I was a kid because I used to always think my teachers hated me. But now I'm kind of like, I don't hate any of them, but sometimes you're annoying, but that's a little different. <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, coaching though, uh, we are still practicing uh, with the current restrictions. They're still allowing collegiate sports to go. Our college, uh, we had a, we're very fortunate to have an athletic director that fights in our honor to continue to practice and, and a president that sees eye to eye with that. So we've actually been practicing all year round, obviously obeying restrictions as they come. So we did team practices early September, October, and then we went down to some individual stuff one-on-one -on -one, uh, throughout January and February. And then now we got back up to 10 people per court and we're going to close out this Friday. So this Friday we're officially done, but that's been a long season. If you think about it, September to April, usually playing them around February or March. And so it's going to be a nice little time to take a break. Well, especially without playing I'm sure it's psychologically demanding to come into the gym every day, knowing that you don't exactly have anything to fight for except for intrinsic motivation. It is, yeah. And we've been using that as bait too. It's like our common saying is we're training while no one else is. Yeah. Um, uh, another thing is uh, you're fighting to be better tomorrow, not to be better for the weekend. And I know uh, that's hard for a lot of guys to start with that long-term goal. goals. Usually you want to start with short-term goals and then progress onward. But here we're like, can we be the best we can be so that we're prepared for September? And that's a saying that in October, you're like, what? So... <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a lesson for those college guys too and I think that's been good as well but it's been really nice to focus solely on just technical things because you've seen the growth that occurs within the athletes when you can give them the one-on-one -on -one attention because usually like you know from youth sport or um, playing in general it's like you, your Friday Saturday Sundays are write-offs because your Sunday you're usually just like laying in bed staring at the ceiling preparing for Monday mm -hmm. Friday or even Thursday sometimes in youth sport you're traveling so you only really get three days of practice, but here we get five, five full days, Monday to Friday, and then we have the weekends off. So we've earned those extra two days of just technical training, and that's been a benefit for our team. So, Yeah, that's huge. I, I, I wonder how you cultivate an environment of learning, particularly in your classroom. I did some teaching in Denmark over this past year, and that was an interesting experience in itself. And I think that I there were a variety of factors that influenced the classroom and the school itself. We were in a really low socioeconomic area and there were, there were a few different factors, but having as many students as you have is interesting because I know that that's a lot more difficult to manage as an educator is managing 30 students rather than even 25 or 20. And how do you, how do you come to cultivate a positive classroom environment? Um, it comes down to just knowing who the kids are and just having those genuine positive interactions like i think for the first two three weeks i didn't really teach anything curriculum wise like i hid some i hid some stuff uh in there just to kind of keep them going to trick them into doing some school but a lot of time it was like can you work well with a partner can you work well with a group um what are the what are our hills that we're going to die on like so for example um, I would turn my camera, but I don't want to ruin this awesome lighting I have going. But I have these posters in the back of like almost like proclamations of the kids agreeing to certain attributes that we want inside our classroom. So one of them I'm looking at right now, it's loyalty. So can we be loyal to our class? Uh, can we be loyal to each other? 
cooperation, enthusiasm. And a lot of these are in line, um, it's very similar to John Wooden's pyramid of success. Um, and because I've taken some of that stuff from coaching and brought it into the classroom as well. And, and if I'm being honest, I, and if you work with me and, and you're watching this, you would agree as well, but there's, you can put any group of kids together and they'll get the job done. Whereas when we were in school, you'd be like, oh, I only want to work with Billy or I only want to work with Sally. And it's now it's like you, get, you put kids into a group and it's like they're just straight to work. So there's no complaining about who you're working with. And I think that also has to do with something uh, because of the pandemic. I mean, you look at elementary school, you have the same teacher teaching you all the subjects in one homeroom. And then, and then in junior high and high school, you tend to float from class to class to see a different teacher. But with our school, these kids have been stuck in this room. The teachers move classrooms. So the teachers are the only ones that see each other in the hallway. And we just give a little wave as we go on to our next subject. But these kids have been stuck and creating like this incubated environment of, um, where they're like, I'm going to have to see you tomorrow. There's no break from each other. So the, it's almost like having a bunch of brothers and sisters in one room. Some days you like them, some days you won't, but at the end of the day, like you love them and you're there to, to get your job done. So it's been great. So look, to develop a classroom culture like that, it, you have to just know who they are, like as if they're a brother or sister, if you're a classmate. And um, I would, I always say I have 60 kids. I've, so um, I, I have a personal relationship with each of the kids that are in both of my classes. I can tell you one significant thing moment that we've shared that has been unique to just me and those kids. And I think um, if you, even if you have just one, some have more, um, even if you have just one, like that alone is like enough leverage to get a kid to uh, stay on the path that they want to be on per se. So. Right. I think that's something you've always been good at is humanizing people and really getting involved in their lives. And I would remember that from, from volleyball camps a lot where there would be a kid with maybe a particularly bad attitude that you would, you'd really dive into their life. And that was kind of something that you, Ken and I tried to do almost to a, a competitive extent was to take the kid with the worst attitude or that we thought had maybe the, you could say they had the most potential and deciding to take that kid under our wings. And so you've always been someone that was great at that is taking someone that maybe other people scoff over or look past them. And you really do, you really dive into people, which I, I like a lot. Thank you. Yeah, that is kind of the goal. And you talked about low um, SES, social economic status, uh, where you were teaching. And that's the same thing here. Like I, these kids, like they look forward to coming to school because it's their first chance of like getting attention. It's their first chance of feeling that someone actually wants to see them, that they get to see someone. And there's a lot of like uh, uh, blue collar families just like working hard. And you have the odd ones who are completely opposite. But these kids are searching for something uh, far more than what the curriculum can offer. And what that is, is human connection. And guaranteed you can get that in this class. And I think that's something special. That's what makes school fun. Like you only, your favorite teachers, you don't like them because of what they taught you. You're like, oh, thank goodness for the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> You're like, that guy made me laugh. This teacher let me, like caught me doing something bad and put me on the right path. Like those are the moments. Um, that I'm trying to create with these kids. I could care less about um, if they leave here gaining an extra 20% on their report card. They will, because I'm an excellent teacher, but, um, they, uh, but they'll learn life skills along the way. And that's something I think is far more important. Right. Being someone to look forward to is a thing that a lot of those kids are striving for. The school that I was teaching in in Denmark had 
I think we were the lowest of the three, whatever categories determined how good a school was. We were the lowest in all of them. We had lowest socioeconomic status, the highest divorce rate. And then I think the last one was the ratio of students to teachers. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening for me was that the, I started working in class as a teacher's assistant. And a week after I got there, the teacher quit. And so I ended up teaching Danish kids English, like grade five and six. So they didn't actually speak English at all. Mm-hmm. So I'm just in Denmark trying to learn Danish as quickly as I can so that I can teach these kids. And it was, it was interesting. And I could, I could definitely see the kids that had those issues at home of socioeconomic status and having a single parent household because there would be kids that would sit there and just wanted to learn. And then there would be two or three kids that would create a lot of chaos. And a lot of the time, the way to get through to those kids was just to sit down with them and have a conversation with them rather than yelling at them, which is what the previous teacher did. And anyone that came in and tried to translate for me, they would end up just yelling at the kids rather than trying to have a conversation. And as you've said before, just love the kid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have moments like that too. Like I have a lot of student examples where you're trying to teach and they just keep interrupting you. And sometimes the hard part is Josh is like, sometimes they're funny and like mid mid lecture, you're like, that's a good one. Like you just want to look at it and be like, you're, you're hilarious. And other times you're like, you're dumb. So it's like, it's like that, that paradox alone is a lot to deal with. But I always say like, what I do is like uh, the deal I've created because I, I read this amazing book. I wonder if it's, it's here. And it was written by one of my profs. It is here. Um, and this has been literally what it's called. It's called uh, The Successful Teacher's Survival Kit. And it was written by one of my profs in university. And at first, like he went through a couple of points that he brought in class. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I think I've never thought of that. And, uh, this is basically, if, if you, I'm assuming you haven't read it. I have not. Yeah. So basically it's like every little thing that you would forget to do as a teacher is in here. So it's like, it teaches you everything you need to make sure that you do so that nothing bad happens along the way. And it's been absolutely um, amazing. And the one point you have, and ironically, I just turned right to the page. Uh, it's called how to train a tiger, the art of negotiating with your students. And when you're training a tiger, such a, like a, like a wild beast that's like that. And I'm not talking like Tiger King um, <laughs> bull crap. I'm talking like when you're trying to train a tiger for like a show or anything that's kind of like that, there are days when you have to let the tiger win because you can't have absolute control over a tiger. It's wild. It's an alpha species. Like uh, they're very independent, even though they work in packs as well. And um, some days you have to let the kids win. And sometimes that happens. Like you don't always have to win as a teacher where they have to be absolutely quiet and um, I just keep on teaching and then usually when I'm done teaching they're doing their work anyway it's just they want their voice to be heard right and that those are the certain things that I would that I look back on and I'm like wow whereas like any other teacher would have the response of what the one who quit is like you're yelling you're screaming you must listen to me I'm the one who knows it all and mm-hmm. at the end of the day it's like I don't know it all and neither do they uh, but a common saying we have is I've already passed grade eight, so I've done it. Um, you have yet to do it, but let's get you there. And so um, there's a, 
there's a lot of that too. And I find kids in low SES, um, they're more real. Like they're just straight up. They're like, I didn't sleep last night because my parents were arguing. And you're like, great. Well, welcome to class. Do you want to go to sleep? They're like, sure. Okay, put your head down, go to bed. And then they'll nap for an hour and then they come back to life and they're a better student because of it. Whereas other teachers would be like, why are you sleeping? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm like, in my drawer right now, I have a stash of food. Like, and good food too. Like I have some Reese's, oh, I got some oh. turtles up in here. And so like I keep food too. Kids know if they come to my class and they need something to eat, like there's food in that food drawer. Um, so it's, it's those things, accommodating for the learners so they can be the best version of themselves while they're in your classroom. That's all you can ever ask of them. Right. I think a lot of it might be a vibe for control. And as you said, it's, uh, it's an, an understanding of what kids are going through. There were a few times where kids would come in with black eyes or they would get into a fight in the schoolyard. I had to walk a kid home at one point in the middle of the day. And so it's always this, it's really relationship forming. I think you make a really good point of that, that the, the better relationship you have, the more you understand someone. It doesn't necessarily have to be good all the time, but at the times when it can be good, it's a lot better than if you're constantly trying to hold someone in control. Yeah, I said it better myself. Yeah. The so, joys. Yeah. What a, so what's, what's a, I want to go back a couple of years at least and talk about your story and how you became an educator and someone that was so concerned with loving people. <laughs> yeah, I hated the world and I hated everyone in it. I remember like, I remember like even just going grocery shopping and someone would pick up an orange and I'm like, how dare you touch that orange? I wanted that one. And I'd be like, they're against me. And my whole world was falling apart. Um, But it kind of just goes back to like, um, everyone goes to that phase. And when you have a lot of self-doubts and for me, my biggest internal battle was battling my sexuality and just being like, because people knew I was gay before I knew I was gay. Like they're like, you like men. I'm like, well, I do, but like, I also like women. And I'm like, do I like women? Is it just like a emotional attachment? Is it sexual? Is it, and that kind of paved the way for a lot of curiosity um, in finding out who I wanted to be. And I thought I could find it through meeting people. So I would see something in someone, I'm like, I want to be like that person. And then I would become them wearing the same clothes, same hairstyle, um, and then after like a month or two, you realize like, this isn't sustainable. So then you find a new person and then you become that person. And so I was a man of many faces. Um, and like I was emo at one point, I had a fake nose ring, a fake lip ring. My hair was black. I was wearing white skinny jeans. The next day I was that preppy jock wearing shorts and a, like a baseball team. I didn't even watch baseball. So it was like, I still don't even watch baseball. Um, and so it's like, those were the, the personas I put on. And, and I think back and I don't regret any of it because now when I look at people um, and they share some of the stories that happened, I've lived that. Like I've lived in their shoes, literally in their clothes. And I, I can kind of resonate with them a little bit. But in terms of my story, I hate talking about myself. So I'm trying to avoid it, but I'll, I'll stay on task. Um, when it comes to my story, it was, it was a fight for understanding of who I was, but more importantly, it was a fight to be loved. And, and I think that I was looking for it in all the wrong places. And I mean that figuratively and metaphorically, like I moved out when I was 15 years old. 
So I left my mom's nest, as she words it, to kind of seek refuge and freedom. Um, and then I also was, um, we grew up with not a lot of money in our family. We had five kids and my mom was a stay-at-home mom and my dad worked out of town a lot. Um, we always had it in assessment necessities but it just wasn't glorious i know sometimes my lunches was a this is an ongoing joke with my friends a piece of cheese and mayonnaise on a piece of bread and i loved it i was like yes mayo and cheese um now i don't even think like i have bread in my house i think i'm scarred from that i'm not just kidding but um and yeah to, to tie it back in like with the love aspect is now like all i wanted was someone just to be like hey you, you can be who you want to be or and if you don't know who that is yet just just wait till you do and we all go through that learning curve to find ourselves and try to relocate and and in all honesty it's not about where you go it's um just where you look within and i think finding my yoga and meditation was a big aspect of identifying that mm -hmm. i i want to jump back to one thing that you said about the persona and I think if particularly as kids, it's, it's really volatile in the way that we present ourselves to ourselves and to other people, because psychologically we're approximating who we are and we do that through a combination of self-love and external love. And sometimes they can be maybe misconstrued for one another, where if you dress a certain way and talk a certain way, then you receive love outwards from the groups that you associate with. And sometimes that doesn't, exactly jive with who you are personally and there can be a, a delay in that where you're receiving love from the outwards and you interpret that as inward love whereas maybe that's not the person that you actually are or want to be so mm -hmm. i think that's um i think people that don't grow out of that i've I, I used to be really good at that or i guess i i could be good at that if i still chose to was being being the person that other people wanted so being able to put a mirror up in front of people and very quickly understanding who they wanted me to be and being able to, to encapsulate all of those personality traits and be that person. So now I, I work much more on just being myself more mm -hmm. or less unapologetically, but I think that's an interesting point. And, and as I was saying, I think that people who continue that into their later life are, I refer to them as friends to as chameleon people people that are able to change colors very quickly to, to satisfy a particular niche in a friendship. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, I think that's an interesting point. Yeah. And it's also interesting to consider like the social aspect of being a chameleon. When you think of in nature, like in forms of adaptations, um, when you can make a structural adaptation like camouflage or um, like changing the color of your skin or based upon your environment or like octopuses, for example, like mm -hmm. it's a, it's a trait of adaptation. It's a trait of intelligence, the trait of like creativity within that species. Um, but if you look at like humans, like it's not necessarily an asset. I find people who are the most able and more equipped to be a social community are some of the saddest people I know and sad, not necessarily meaning like depression, sad, but just like, um sad is in the form of like loss of identity um that is in the need to conform um and they're lacking that individualism within their within their life and i'm speaking that also from experience and i'm not sure if you can agree with that mm -hmm. as well when it comes to you like there are people who like to hear what you have to say along the way and there's people who actually love you for who you are and it's like 
filtering through that and trying to understand who is in what category is also tough. And that comes from being a social chameleon is like, you also don't know who you are, but you also don't know who the real friends are um, in that process as well. So it's this twisted tango that you're doing with yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that I, I very, at a, at a young age, I grew out of the social chameleon. I could still do it. I, I think I, like I said, I still could do it if I really wanted to. It does go. I mean, it doesn't leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that being, when I was quite young, I got, I got super depressed. And from there, I think that I found who I was by really starting at a, a bottom layer. And so I, I think I spent two years of high school wearing slippers, the same sweatpants. They were really comfy. They were Lulu and, uh, a, and a big sweater. And that was pretty much all I would wear. And mm -hmm. so from there, I, I really baseline started it who I was because I, I could kind of move through all of the groups while still being myself, but also in each circumstance, changing myself a little bit. So I think that was a way that I actually approximated my own personality was that I figured out what worked for everybody because in some sense you can't be, you can't completely construct your own personality because if you are who you are and you can construct your own morals and conscience, then nobody else matters. Mm -hmm. But as social creatures, we have to in some way incorporate what is socially acceptable from other people into ourselves so that we're, we're not stepping on each other's toes all the time. And yeah. I think that that's something that the, the internet is a, there's a, I think it's an unforeseen consequence, not necessarily in a negative connotation of the internet is that people can always find people that are similar to them. And so you can always find support to be yourself. And there's not as much of that social pull between people in a group, in a, in a tight environment that you, you kind of have to conform to us. You can always go elsewhere because there are other people like you in the world. There always will be. And so you can always find those people rather mm -hmm. than conforming to those close to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love that you said that. And I, it, it's like that nature versus nurture debate. We are, products of socialization like we we learn how to speak a language we learn how to act in a society and in addition to that like i love how you said like you can find like people uh whenever you want and it, it's become so accessible that like and we see it now even in everyday life if i want to hang out with a friend let's say i want to get absolutely shit-faced to go to the club and i know exactly who to call yeah <laughs> if i want to lay down in my bed and play video games and have a game night I know who to call. If I want to be an introvert or go on a trip and have someone else take the lead and let me be a follower, I know who to call. And it's, um, there's pros and cons to that. But within that, it's just understanding what part of you do you need in that moment. And I think the biggest thing I learned uh, was learning how to say no. You talked about you wore your same clothes and what was good for you and, and how you acted. And for me, it was like when I'd be with someone and they'd be like, let's go do this. And I actually didn't want to do it the old Andre would be like, yeah, let's do it. And then you get in trouble and then you go home and you're like, Frick, I can't believe I did that. And you're laying in bed. But I got really good at saying no. Like, I, I don't actually want to do that. I don't want to set this dumpster on fire. I don't want to pick on this kid. I don't want to spend my money on this, these pairs of shoes. And like, it just became the power of no became like um, such an asset to how I lived my life. And then in turn, 
the power of yes took over. It's like, I don't want to do that, but I actually just want to do this. And then when you follow that natural intuition, I'm sure, I mean, I know some call it cosmic consciousness, some call it your own consciousness, the, the ego, that balance between that. Um, and ultimately, you know exactly what you want to do in the moment that, some, that an opportunity arises and it's just listening to when it pops up. So if I want to say like, do, are you having fun right now? You have an answer right there, as soon as, right there. It just came up. And yes. the answer is either yes or no. Yeah, it's yes or no. Well, it better be yes. Um, and it's like, anytime you're posed with a question like that, you already know the answer before something comes out. And it's whether or not, are you listening to that or are you denying that? And that becomes the question with whether you're living your truth. Well, truth in quotations. But so that was one of the things I had to realize is like, I already know the answer as soon as the question is asked. The question becomes now, do I want to follow the answer or do I want to just not? So And how did you how did you find that? How do you move that from uh because I think that there's a there's a dynamic between the yes and no in habit. And there was a there's a study I was reading uh, a few months ago and in it people that people that put their lives on the line to save someone so running into a burning building or diving into a fast river to save someone else it wasn't a conscious decision it was a habit and these people also tended to be truthful more often than not mm-hmm. so i think that there's an interesting dynamic of habit there where you have to form this habit and, and how did you how did you develop that how did you um, find your no yeah, it started with meditation. Um, and meditation was just kind of, I had a very overactive brain and I wasn't trying to silence it. I was just trying to understand it. Like, I was like, why am I always thinking about this? You're in a crowd of people, you can feel other people's energy. You can tell when they're upset. And I'm like, why do I have this gift or this curse, whatever you wanted to look at it as? And it came down to meditation was my idea going back to the OCD at the beginning of this conversation my way of like sorting things into the sections that they needed to be in in order for me to thrive and so I was like what is this happening is this happening because of this yes okay put it with that and then once you kind of sifted through all of it it was just like this like moment and you're like I can do anything um and the hard part was or the funny part is you will always lose if you choose the wrong direction. Always, 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 always. Whether it's immediately um, or later, hence karma. Um, but you will always, always lose if you choose the wrong way. But if you choose the path that you actually are meant to be on, so in the moments when you say the answer what you want and do what it actually says, um, you will always win. And And what I mean by win is like, there's this, it, there's this balance between effort and ease. It's like you're doing the work and it's actually, you're seeing a product. You're seeing something come of it. And then there's also doing the work and then you fail. And it's just a matter of understanding why you're succeeding and why you're not succeeding. And almost always you're succeeding because you're being truth to your, truthful to yourself. And so I'm not shocked that those people were more honest, truthful people when it came down to that because they're constantly making decisions in their head, which I guess can be formed into a habit uh, the more you choose a certain direction. Um, and yeah, so I completely agree. My personal experience is directly correlated to that same experience. 
think a lot of the the inability to say no is a mountain you have to chip at one moment at a time every moment that you're honest with yourself and you do follow your personal truth and say no to something it's you chipping away to the at this mountain your, your entire life of saying yes saying yes saying yes and so over time you you have to knock that down until it's small enough that you can carry it into your pocket and i think that's the philosophy of the the yes man thing as well is to say yes to things until the point where you know what you want to do so you say yes to everything and then once you've said yes to everything you finally get to a point where you realize well i don't want to do that thing i really don't want to do that thing and so now i can say no so it's uh it's kind of the opposite dynamic for people who just say no all the time and say no i don't want to do that it's you you putting together a a conscious model where you have to say yes or you have to say no to follow your own truth and so you have to find that over time but i think that the one of the best ways to go about that is to go the complete opposite way. And if you're someone that says yes all the time, start saying no way more and overcompensate. And then you'll find yourself in the middle. You'll, um, you'll recede back to the mean. You'll come back to your, your homeostatic rebound place of normalcy and being truthful to yourself. You, you mentioned your experience with meditation. I think that you avoided one of the most fallible ideologies of meditation which I, I really enjoy in that you didn't want the thoughts to stop, but you wanted to understand them. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Because <laughs> so many, so many people, even people that I talked to, I was, uh, I was meditating the other day in the backyard and someone came through and they went, Oh, you're much better at meditating than I am. And I didn't know how to explain it to them, but I said, well, it's not necessarily something that you're good at. It's a practice. And I didn't want to sound condescending or, for lack of a better word, I didn't want to sound like a dickhead. Yeah, we always do sound condescending. You're like, oh, I can do it. I've sat for eight, nine hours. And they're like, how? And it's like, well, it's not even a competition. It's like, what are you? Some people use it as a crutch to kind of alleviate stress. Some people actually have a practice and they work at it daily because they want to just understand more parts of themselves. And some, it's just an activity that they do to keep them grounded. And I think for me, the understanding myself or understanding the thoughts um it's the difference between uh finding the root of something and just band-aiding it so i could tell myself to stop thinking about let's say like an x or all the stuff i have to do today and it can go away but the moment i open my eyes and i get away from my seat it's frick it comes back and you're like why i thought i just told you to leave um but understanding the thought is like why am i having this thought why does it keep coming out? What hold do I still have with that thought? And what am I going to do to get rid of it if it needs to get rid of? And so it comes down to forgiveness, forgiving myself, forgiving others. Like I remember calling one of my exes and, and just saying, like, I forgive you for what you did to me. And because I was holding on to it for so long. And I was like, why would you ever treat someone like this? And it bothered me that they were in love with someone else and they look so happy on social media and and then i'm over here suffering and i'm like why would you do that to me and then the honest answer was it actually had nothing to do with me at all and but i was holding on to that and so filtering through that and just understanding where you need to forgive people and where you need to forgive yourself that was the root of understanding the thought and then once you kind of give forgiveness to it or closure i guess is the the fad term that's being thrown around is any closure, any closure. Um, 
and almost always the closure isn't actually what you need. But when you actually do get the, the authentic closure, the thought just won't be there anymore because it's, it's like a solved problem. You don't go home thinking that one plus one is two because you've already know it's two, right? And so you don't have to think about it anymore. But if you saw like this problem that you just couldn't get, you're going to go home and like, oh, frick, how do you solve that? What is this madness math going on? Ah, and then you go to bed and you're crying, you're Googling, trying to find it. You're like reading all these books and you're like, what is this? And then when you find it, you're like, oh, okay. And then you, and then you never think about it again. And that's kind of what I mean by organizing the thought is like collecting all the information as to where it came from, why it's here, why it's still here, uh, why it keeps coming back. Um, and just finally putting it to rest. And I think um, that was the biggest task for me. I'm able to sit quiet and I've been an introvert for a long time. I'm, and I'm happy to be alone. I find most people meditation, that's the first hard part is have you actually just spent time by yourself? Like I used to go to the movies by myself. Why? Because no one wants to see the movies that I'm watching. And I'm not gonna drag someone to do it because then I'm forcing them to do something they don't wanna do, which contradicts them living their truth. And then I want to watch this movie and I don't like sharing popcorn. Like I hate when people reach into your bag and they grab your, that's my popcorn. So I just recognize going to the movies was perfect by myself. But so it's kind of um, understanding the thought as opposed to trying to get rid of it. Cause it's not gonna go away um, until you understand it. So that's something that I hope that answers your question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, I, I really like that thought. I am a chronic negative visualizer. I, and I've found the best way to deal with my personal neuroticism is to follow the chord until it ends. So if there's a string in my head that, well, if this happens, then this, I go all the way down that string until I find myself in where I'm likely to end up if that does end up happening. So maybe it's something along the lines of, uh, I'm not sure you say something to a friend or you say something, uh, you, you have some kind of conflict with someone and I always find the worst thing that could happen. And it often doesn't result in me dying, save for a few cases maybe. But I, I find that that's the most therapeutic way for me to do it is to go all the way to the end and visualize what could happen if I follow this string. I've multiple times I've slept outside and been on the verge of, homelessness and haven't eaten for five or six days and and at the end of it I've, I've always been alive so that's a way that I deal with things and another one is journaling and actually writing things down to get them out of my head a lot of time I'll be plagued with a thought for lack of a better term until I actually put it down on paper and put it somewhere that's outside of my mind and once I know it's outside of my mind I'm a lot more able to focus on other things and to start solving other problems Beautiful, the theory of exhaustion. Um, that's not actually a coin term, that's just what I called it. So don't Google it. Google it's coin now. <laughs> theory of exhaustion. When, you, exhaustion, when you train a dog, and I'm not comparing you to a dog by any means, even though you are quite the dog. <laughs> um, but when you train a dog, you want to exhaust them first. You want them to be like so tired, you take them for a run, you get them exhausted. And when they're exhausted, that's the best time to train them is to when because then their full attention's on you they don't have anything else they want to do 
and then now they're going to give you the attention. I've read it in books all the time about saw it on like the dog training shows that were like on TV as soon as you got home from a kid. And, and the same thing is true kind of like what you're speaking about. You talked about being starving for five days on the edge of homelessness and and that's you're exhausted. And the interesting thing is once you've ran out of all your fuel, and I'm talking the only thing left are like fumes. That is when you start to be like, this isn't sustainable, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, or this isn't actually what I want to do, or this is now what I have to do. And the moment you fix that in that exhaustive state, all of a sudden everything starts to happen. And I, that's actually what I call rock bottom. It's like when you hit the rock bottom, and I'm saying this because I'm actually picturing you now. I remember you being like, I don't have a ride to go to camps. I don't have a ride to do any of this. I'm just going to hitchhike. And you're like, okay. And then I see you there early for the meeting. You're like, hey, I got here. I'm like, of course you did. Because it's like when you hit rock bottom and you have all this room to then start building, you can build it how you want to. And you have all the confidence in the world. You're like, well, I can't get much lower than this. Um, and like, what's after this? Death? not even scared of death anymore and it's like it just becomes like you develop this confidence within every decision that you make and I think that's something that's quite spectacular is coming from that exhaustive state but then finding direction afterwards I mean you you hear about it um with Mandela he was locked in prison for many years and often became like a world leader and the reason why is because he had that time at rock bottom um there's also other factors that influence that but like you've spent that time down there in the darkness in that depth in that torturing state of mind and you found resolution and I think a lot of people are scared to get there a lot of people are just scared to to hit that but rock bottom is solid ground like I would rather be at the bottom of a hole than falling does that make sense Mm -hmm. because now I know where it ends and then now the question becomes not when does this end and what's going to happen at the bottom is just, okay, how do I get up there now? And it's just, then it's easier to find a way or a path upward. And I think that's something that's, that's beautiful about life is being able to hit rock bottom. If everyone could do it, I would say definitely do it. You should have a moment where you hit rock bottom before you can become any person who's in charge of power before you do anything meaningful in your life. I would suggest hitting rock bottom because <laughs> then you can appreciate all those other things. Mm-hmm. I always liked the way that you conceptualized rock bottom as if you were a tree, you'd want to plant your tree at the bottom because it's so foundational and there's so much solidity in rock bottom. And recently I did a a lecture and at the end I psychoanalyzed uh, an older Tibetan painting. And in the painting I talked about the, so there's the, in, in Buddhism, there's this thing called a Prito, which is a, they're the hungry ghost. That's how it would translate into English. And the idea is that it has this big belly and this really narrow throat. And so it's something I, I related it both to uh, narcissistic energy and also to addiction in, in different ways, but we'll go with the addiction one where it's a place where you really want something. You're very hungry for something, but you know that you can't have it because then you're going to stay there for the rest of your life. And in some way that's its own hell and that's, it's uh, a form of purgatory. And so I, I like that idea of rock bottom is somewhat of a psychological 
conception as well. It's a psychological construct because you can always go deeper, but to find yourself in the place where you're consciously aware of how far you've fallen, that's a very, um, it's a very strong place to be. It's a very fundamentally uh, solid place to be is knowing that you've fallen as far as you have so that you can start to climb upwards, but also knowing that just as quickly you could fall again. And I think that's something good to keep in mind as well as you climb out of that is that you always know that no matter how far you ascend, there's always a dissension around the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think of towers as well, like in order for a tower to be taller, it has to go deeper into the ground to find its roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the best part about you talked about going up and then going back down is like when you do go back down you're like oh i've been here before mm-hmm. it's not so dark or maybe last time you left a little light there a little candle that you can just turn back on and get you going again it becomes territory that you've trekked on before um you talked about um the universe or like being it holding something away from you and i think that's something special to talk about as well because the best analogy i can think of right now is how badly do dogs want chocolate you know like they're just like i want the chocolate and we know dogs can't have chocolate and so we withhold it from them but it's something we can have and we love it and we keep it for ourselves and and so i put that trust into the universe so like if i don't get something like um for example this is hard pulling on my heartstrings, but I was nominated for an award uh, for my school. Um, It was a very prestigious award, but I didn't get it. And it really hurt my feelings, but um, the universe or whatever we want to call it was withholding something from me intentionally. And I think that isn't meant to be viewed as a a defeatist attitude or a fatalistic view on the world but it's it's the same way that we withhold chocolate from our dog it's like we know if we would give it to the dog it would enjoy it for that moment but it would be very sick and i know for me like i only wanted that award so i could boast about it that was the only reason why i wanted it josh i didn't even like i picked out the frame i was like googling what it looked like and i found out it was actually a plaque and so i like picked a spot on my wall and I was just like, at the end of the day, it was a teaching award. And I was like, at the end of the day, I actually don't need that for the work that I'm doing in here. And that was like, it took a while for me to be like, oh, the universe isn't giving me this because I actually don't need that. I don't need that validation to know what I'm doing in here is something that's magnificent. And so I thought that was an interesting way of, there's always that higher consciousness or power or even like surrounding or way of thought um, that withholds stuff from you on purpose. And I think mm-hmm. there's growth that comes after that. So yeah. I think something cool about that as well is how, how do you rebound from that psychologically? Because I know a lot of people who maybe in that circumstance really do hit a, hit a rock bottom from that. But I think that rock bottom may be inevitable, but the rate at which we ascend is, there's a little bit more free will. If, mm-hmm. if I'm allowed to say that there's a little yeah. bit more free will in that motion upwards. So I think that you're someone who, in my experience has a, you're, you're good at adjusting. <laughs> Thank you. 
um yeah it's uh it comes down to the why so like why did you want it in the first place um and is your why great enough to be upset over not getting it and so like when i think of scholarship money i didn't get a scholarship for having the best gpa did i need the scholarship money yes did i have the best gpa no pretty close but it's probably not the best so why am i upset if i know it actually wasn't the best or if i really needed the money why am i not applying for those scholarships that require an essay or why am I not replying, applying for those scholarships that require extra work to complete the application process instead of clicking the button and saying apply, right? Um, and so finding the why as to why you actually wanted it, I think is a key thing to start. Um, and then there's also the script of when you really want something and you don't get it, right? And so um for me i didn't actually i wanted that for my ego but i didn't actually want it if that makes sense like i just wanted it it would collect dust on my shelf is what i'm saying like i'm not you'd have like a moment of glory where you're like this is amazing this is the best thing ever and then all of a sudden it's like okay what do i do with this thing in 10 years people are gonna i won this award 10 years ago <laughs> and they're gonna be like so <laughs> and so it's like um when you Again, it comes back to like when the universe withholds something from you, your reaction to it is also a part of the lesson. And so how many times have you wanted something and didn't get it, but still haven't changed that aspect in your life that stops you from getting other things, right? So it's a lesson in time and it's a lesson in, in present time. So it, in the past and in the present. And I think that's another way to look at it is it's not just what's happening now. It's like, what have you not done yet? Um, and I think that's powerful within that as well. So. Right. You elicit a, a very strong locus of internal control in that circumstance mm -hmm. where you say, well, I didn't get the thing, but now I'm looking forward to something else. And I think that that's a, a very admirable position to take where you're looking inwards for what you can do next externally, rather than looking inwardsly as to, uh, maybe you could have taken that that's as a as a personal slight and you could have complained about it and freaked out about how you didn't get it even though you deserved it and all of these other people were wrong but instead you you change the locus of control which i think that is a very it's a good skill to practice for people is changing it from external how so somewhat of a victim mentality what is the the universe done to me that i deserve this thing and you've changed it from that to, well, what could I do next time? What can I do better? What can I improve at? We are also in process. And, and I think about the girl who, who did win it. And then when I was reading her bio and reading like all the stuff that was, I'm like, the only thing this girl hasn't done was cure cancer. Like honestly, she like, I was like, holy, I'm like, okay, yeah, you did it. Like that is, that is who that award is for, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's also just like understanding, like you always put yourself in a light where, well, I know I do, like, I always think I'm the best I can be, but there always is going to be someone who's better than you at something, right? Like I know right now, like there's better math teachers out there. 
than I am right now. There's more experienced math teacher than I am. There. Um, are there people who are funnier than me? Yeah, there are, even though I would refuse to admit it. Um, Nobody more handsome though. Oh yeah, that's that. That's my category. If only there was an award for that. Um, but there's, and it's like there's always going to be someone better than you. And even, and so for me, like, I thought about this as an athlete as well. Like, because I was quite the stat hound when I would play. Like, if I didn't get six digs a set, I was mad, and I'd be like, "You counted wrong." And then I would go watch game tape, and then I look at my thing and I'm like, oh, they were right. I only did get four or three. Um, and then I would just, it was, it was funny to validate myself with a number or with that, that piece when chances are when we'd win, I wouldn't have a lot of dicks. It was those games that were, that were bad that I would have more dicks. That means more stuff's coming past the block. The block's mm -hmm. not doing their job. We're trying to transition more. Um, and typically in a game of volleyball, if you have a lot of stuff coming on your side from across the net, that means they have more opportunities to score. Um, and that would generally mean the team would do poorly or wouldn't, we wouldn't win those games. Um, I always had the joke that liberos can't win games. They can always lose them. Um, but there's a, and so that was like a lesson I had to learn as an athlete as well. Is like this number doesn't actually denote performance and i think of the same thing with grades like yeah you can't do the pythagorean theorem but i know you can build a shelf i can't build a shelf i've tried even the ikea furniture confuses me but it's like these kids have skills that are far past the curriculum that'll benefit them in life um stuff that i can't even do and it's just that it comes down to like how you perceive it to be a value in your life, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the idea of you don't have to succeed for the teams to succeed, or at least you don't have to be a shining star for the team to succeed. And maybe you being a shining star is not a direct causation of the team losing, but you being a shining star doesn't mean that the team's going to win every time. And that's a a very humbling experience to have when you realize that you're playing a role in a team. And as you said, in the classroom and in a group and in a family and in a community, we, we all play this role and not everyone can be the person going out and scoring 30 points every game, hitting 500. So it is all about playing roles. And the best teams that I've been on have been a bunch of guys that just play a bunch of roles and there's no real superstar. And, if there's a big superstar, then they appreciate everyone else who is supporting them in their roles. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at some of the best teams, if we're using volleyball as a sport, um, like Trinity Western won U Sport Nationals in three sets last year. Like mm -hmm. the most intense game in quotations of the season was one in three sets. And you, they, it just looks like they're having fun. Like that's all that it looks like they're doing. It doesn't even look like they're fighting for the score. It looks like they're fighting for something greater. And it, um, it could be a show. I mean, I doubt it is, but because it's really hard to fake that. Um, maybe you and I could do it because we're good at that stuff um, if we wanted to be. Um, but there's, you're, they're playing for each other. Um, they're doing it for the collective. And I think with competitive sports, um, everyone is good everyone mm -hmm. is good and it's like 
the question is who's going to be great today and that's the job of a coach and i face that i face that when i'm coaching right now is like you have a guy who statistically is better than the others let's say for example we're doing the libero position um because that's only one or a setter only one of those can play typically in a match and so you have your guy who is more consistent but you've also seen what the other guy can do in certain times and you want to see what they're capable of doing so you choose that guy to be the one who's great for that day um, and allow him to bask or to bask in that glory and um that alone becomes the reward because you're not gonna you'll remember sitting on the bench and how much it sucked but deep down like um that's your own ego being like why isn't it me and then so the question becomes like why isn't it you right Mm -hmm. a lot of those things typically come down to to training and all that kind of stuff and now i'm just now i digress but essentially what i'm trying to say is it's not necessarily about doing it just for yourself although i am very individualistic at times it's also just tying it into the why and in team sports it should be for the team um, and it should be for that collective because you ultimately have the same goal so if I can piggyback off of you, if I'm playing bad, I know you can help me. I know you can probably better the ball. And it's like, or if someone else is playing bad, you can better the ball for them. And it's, and that's the beauty of a team sport, right? It's like, it's the strength of the collective. Um, whereas badminton or think tennis, for example, when you're doing singles, if you're having a bad game, you're done. Like you've lost, right? Mm -hmm. There's no one there to kind of help you. So I think as much as we're talking about being the best version of yourself, building an army of people who have also like-minded people who have that same enthusiasm towards that are good to have in your corner. And I mean, I can think of like select few that I have in my life, but um, I know I could always depend on them if I needed to. And so you're not meant to live life alone completely. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. Have you had, would do you have anyone that you kind of know is like always there for you, regardless of your? Uh, I would say that growing up, I didn't really have a big support network, if a support network at all. And so that was very tough. I, I didn't often feel as though I had anyone in my corner. And so I grew up very, not individualistic, but independent would be a better word. So I was very independent growing up. And I think that that was a rebound from being very dependent. And like I would, I, I hated walking across school alone. I would be like, ah, just walk me to my class. And my friends would be like, no, I would, I would coerce them into walking me to class. And then I became super dependent or sorry, super independent. So I was taking Calgary transit across the city when I was 11 or 12 years old and I got to see lots of things that lots of people don't get to see, which was interesting. Uh, but now I feel as though I've really developed a, a network or a web of friends that I can depend on regardless of what I'm going through. So depending on whether it's emotional or psychological or academic, I always have someone that I can lean on. I'd say the person that I lean on the hardest is probably my friend, Randy. Uh, the other day we had a phone, we had a phone call that was like seven and a half hours long. And 
and we, we just talked about a bunch of random stuff. He was quarantining in his cabin in Manitoba because he just went back for there from BC and we've both been reading a ton, but we were, we were talking every single day for the two weeks, or I think it was the second week that he was there. We were talking every day and we talked for about two or three hours. And then this one day we just talked for seven and a half hours and it was just uh, a culmination of all of the cool things that we'd been learning over the past little bit. And we were just building on each other's ideas and it was a lot of fun, but yeah, that's a long answer to your question of, I do feel that I've developed a support network and that took a long time. And there are some people on that list that I don't think ever would have been there. And I'm very glad that they are. I, one of my friends, Ty, we played together for two years and our first year we absolutely hated each other because I was very confrontational when it came to being told what to do. I was very, I didn't like that. I, I like to ask a lot of questions and question authority and he was an authority. And so we didn't get along at all. And then after that year, we became best friends and ended up living together in my fifth year. And he's also now one of my best friends. And we talk at least once every, every two or three weeks for a few hours. So it, I do agree. It is incredibly important to have those support networks and to have someone where it feels like they're in your corner because I've been in that place before where you're at rock bottom and it's a lot easier to get out of rock bottom with a hand to help you than it is to climb up a dirt wall. I'm so happy that you used those two examples when you said that because I was setting you up for this next part of our conversation. It's because typically now, like when you, um, for lack of a better term, when you become woke, let's just say, mm -hmm. there's two people that manage to stay in your life. And one of those is that person who celebrates your successes and you also celebrate theirs. So that was Randy, you said, you talked mm -hmm. about all these things you did and it's so exciting. You read these books and you're like, oh my God, I'm reading that book, I read it. And it's like, it's so exciting. But then you talked about Ty, the other one is people who challenge you mm -hmm. um, and challenge your perception. And he did that. He was an authority figure. You liked to challenge that. And he would also just like challenge you back. And um, in a way, like, and then I'm happy you also said like, it's not being piggybacked to get out of the hole. Like when someone challenges you, um, they're challenging, not you, they're challenging your perception of the topic. And so it's like, why do you need control in this moment? Or why do you have to do it this way if there's another way that it can be done? And those are the two types of people that generally stay longer inside people's lives. It's mm -hmm. the people who agree with you all the time and the people who always want to do what you want to do um, that don't last a long time. And mm -hmm. I think that is something spectacular because I have those two people like, um, like I think of people who challenge me, like, you know, Danielle, mm -hmm. um, and she's absolutely amazing. And I don't have to talk to her every day, but when I see her accomplish something, I'm like, frick, now I got to do something. Um, and it's not a matter of trying to feed her. It's just manning being like, oh, I can actually still do more. I can still challenge myself to be better. I was actually just before we even started this call, I was doing like some online coaching courses and people would be like, why wow, you're such a great coach. You already know. I'm like, but I don't know everything. And it's interesting to hear like new language or dialogue exchange about certain topics. So Danielle would be the one um, who really challenges me. And then I have other, I have multiple friends and I can name them all, but 
um, who I celebrate my successes with, like, because you want, you want recognition for what you've done, but you also don't want it to be fake. Like, you don't want it to be like, oh my God, you have your ed degree. You're going to be the best teacher ever. You're going to be so amazing. Like, you need the friend who's going to be like, congrats on your ed degree. That's a huge accomplishment. Holy crap. Are your next few years going to be tough as hell? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a good friend. And um, I think like creating that contrast and creating the definitions and those lines of as, as to where your friends entail, that actually helps kind of buttress you in to your path towards success. It's because if you begin to fall one way, oh, back on track, oh, back on track. And it's kind of like this um, brick breaker game to yeah. get all the way to where you want to go. Yeah, so. Well, I was even saying that to Randy the other day that I'm, I'm very glad that I've accrued the friends that I have because they're all doing such cool things and we're able to, we're able to bounce. Actually, I think I was talking to Ty about that. We're able to, I'm able to hold myself accountable by looking at the things that my friends are doing. Oh, you're doing your masters. Oh, you're, you're now looking to go and play overseas and teach English. And wow, you're going to the top of a a very big tech company and well, my other friend's writing a book. And so it's, hearing all of those things is very motivating and it's really important to have friends that motivate you and push you as well. Because you, I think that there's a a push pull dynamic between friends where sometimes you need your friends to push you. And like you said, wow, Andre, you have a really cool ed degree. Now these next years are going to be tough. You're going to, you're going to do great. And then you also need friends to pull you, as you've said with Danielle, where you see her do something and you go, okay, I better grab onto this rope before she, she outruns me. And I think that's a, I, I want to say that it, there's a, I do think this is a real thing as in, I've, I've read this, I'm not making this up, but you can, you can predict friends will typically uh, land in the same socioeconomic status. So there's a correlate between your friends and how much money you make. Mm. And I think that that's a, not necessarily based on the idea that well you if you're smart you're gonna have a bunch of smart friends and all of these things but it's a, it's i think that maybe a more human version of that would be you push your friends and they push you to achieving the best you're you're all pushing each other to be your best when your best is needed and so having friends that allow you to do that and push you and you push them and there's a, an open dialogue and and kind of like you said with alternative ideas and challenging perceptions on things something that i've i've been doing lately is if i read a book from from one philosophical position i'll contrast that with the opposite side and i think it's actually very psychologically demanding i understand why people don't challenge their implicit biases uh because i, I it's it's very psychologically demanding mm-hmm. and it's really tough to consistently question the things that you think about and try to develop an objective perspective on things. And it's a, it's an absolute task, but having friends that, that are beside you through that as well is really important. It's kind of like having a community or family that, as we were talking about earlier with the personas that you take on and people going, well, that's not Andre, that is Andre. And them kind of pushing you and steering you to become your own person. They're kind of the the socialization of you is also within that brick player game where if you go a little bit too far they keep you inside and so they're always keeping you inside and with friends it's the same and with family and community it's the same where 
I know that I have friends where I can talk about ideas that maybe I couldn't talk about in a larger social setting. Mm-hmm. And I know that if they cringe back a little bit or go, Oh, Josh, I'm not sure about that. Then I know that I've maybe gone a little bit too far and I have to, to curtail myself and bring myself back to a more grounded perspective and maybe lean back the other way. Hmm. I have a question for you about that. How do you make that decision? Because ultimately it is a decision to not be jealous of their successes, but instead use that as like a way to remind yourself. Because it's so easy to be like, frick, they have their masters, frick, they mm-hmm. are doing all these things. They're so successful. I'm not, I'm stuck here, boo-hoo. And it's like, how did you make that decision of it being oh, I'm actually really happy for these people. I shouldn't be jealous, but this is now motivation for me to do better. I think it comes from a few places. And first, I'd like to go over the idea of love, where loving someone for what they've done and not being resentful of what they've accomplished is incredibly important in any relationship dynamic that you develop. If you become resentful of someone for what they've become and you consider them a friend, then maybe you should consider your friendship to them and also your relationship to yourself. And I try not to compare myself to other people, but rather to myself. And Mm -hmm. so each day I try to become a better version of who I was yesterday or even who I was last week or last month, because those are a little bit more tangible. Mm -hmm. And a way that I try to humble myself and that is maybe taking a progress photo that'll never see the light of day or writing in my journal and going back and reading an idea that I've I've had about a book maybe a month ago and then going back and rethinking the position that I've taken on it and how my ideas have changed since I've read maybe other books. Another way is that my, I'll, I'll never become my friends. I have a friend, uh, we call him Bird, but his actual name is Kyle. And that's a long story, but he, 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 he's just a math genius. Like he's just one of the smartest human beings in the world. And we're actually, we're working together on a thing. Uh, I don't know how much I can say about it, but it's cool. And uh, he's, he's my, he's my Wozniak. And that's what I've, I've told him. We've talked about it a little bit before. He's my, he's my Wozniak and I'm the jobs. Mm. We, we each have our own deficits and we play off of each other's benefits. So we're both benefiting off of each other's deficits because I'm, I'm not a mathematician. I really like math. I think math is super cool. I enjoy doing math and practicing math because I think that that keeps me a little bit sharper when I, when I talk language, because I think, but I think that that's my thing is that he's really good at math. I'm, I'm quite good at articulating myself. I'm better at talking and thinking and social connections and social dynamics. And so that's something that I do for us as a group. And each of my friends brings a, such a different alternative perspective on things. Ty is way more pragmatic about things. He's, he's definitely someone that I talked to before making any type of investment or long-term decision. Uh, Randy's a philosophical genius and a old school literary whiz. He's very, very smart in terms of English and writing. So he's, he's totally my guy for that. And then my friend Charlie is just the, he's, he's my, I'd say he's my emotional anchor. We don't, we don't talk very often, but anytime we do, he's just, he's a teddy bear. I love the guy so much. And he's always someone that I can go to, to feel love and to experience love just through talking about things that maybe don't pertain to emotion or love, but 
I just feel it ooze out of that guy. And my other friend Sam is really similar to Ty in the sense of pragmatism, but he he was the captain for our team for four years, and there was a reason for that. The dude's just a like he's he's a man. He was he was the man out of our friend group, and so that was that was always something that I valued in Sam was number one his love for comics and DC, Marvel, Star Wars, and Lord of the Rings. We were always able to nerd out together. But aside from that, he was always the he was always the voice of reason. So, and I'm not sure where I where I fit in that puzzle. Uh, maybe I'm the kind of weird jester guy that runs around and talks and makes fun of stuff occasionally. But I, I fit somewhere in there, and I'm not each of them. But they fit into me in such a way that they increase my deficits and they give me something to strive for. And I would say that in the way of, I'm trying to think of the right word. Um, not, not interpret, but I think it starts with an I. There are people that I model myself after because I know that I have deficits in the, in the areas that they're excellent in. They excel at these places and, and I, I know that I miss those. So I try to model myself, my, myself after the things that they bring to the table because I know that Sam's unbelievably responsible and maybe I'm not as responsible as I could be. So I use Sam as a, as a, as a cookie cutter for, for me and Charlie is always full of love. So anytime I think that I'm a little bit low on the love meter, I always go back to Charlie and Bird is an unbelievably analytical mind. So I always go back to Bird when I'm thinking about math or if I have questions about computers or math or anything along those lines. And we can talk about boats and sailing and building a commune on the island. And then with, with Ty and Randy, it's the same thing. We talk about kind of anything, any books that we're reading. I think those two are two of the most knowledge hungry humans that I've met in the past almost, I'd say almost in my life, actually, to be honest. They're, they're always reading, always trying to incorporate knowledge and become the best version of themselves and realize the this idea of heaven on earth and the the most actualized version of themselves so all of them are people that i model myself after and i really wish i could think of that word because it it would really tie everything together but integrate i don't know uh more or less model myself there's someone that i'm i'm looking towards and building myself off of i'm they're, they're a part of my persona. I, I incorporate them into my own life in that way. <laughs> that's going to bother me too. The word for you. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's quite like, it's interesting how we almost, and I don't want to degrade and then your friends by calling them this, but like we have a social toolkit that we mm -hmm. kind of use that's filled with people. And, and that same thing with us or with myself, like I have friends who, are my math people, I have friends with my science people, my readers, my non-readers, my partiers, my chefs, my, you know, like, and it's so nice to have like that amalgamation of people that you can bring to, but you have such a close relationship with them that they are accessible whenever you need them. Um, it was interesting how you paused when you said like, you don't know where you fit in with the, in terms of like the puzzle pieces. And I think that's true for everyone is like, because I know for me, I'm like, what do I actually offer this person? Like, I don't even mm -hmm. think like I do anything. 
but then they'd be able to tell you themselves. Like if you were to call Danielle right now, she'd be like, oh, well, Andre does this. Or if you could call like, let's say Kayla Passmore, for example, like you could be like, oh, you do this. And whereas I'm aloof to all of that. Cause like all I kind of see is like my agenda of how they fit into my life or my final puzzle picture and the piece that they play with in that. But we don't often get to see what ours is. And I think that was interesting how you touched on that. Cause, cause um, we aren't those people, as you said as well. And to go back to the question I asked you, how you don't get jealous is exactly that. Like we aren't those people. And I find like a lot of times when we're competing for something or when we're trying to accomplish something, it's you're competing against other people for that prize. But at the end of the day, it's you're competing against yourself and what you wish to accomplish from it and what you, what you wish to gain from it. And I think that's the beauty of being human is like being able to feel all of that at once but how do you um there's a moment you talked about um i don't remember i should have written it down i've been writing notes trying to make sure i don't lose my mind i'm like i got to ask him this <laughs> um, but i didn't write that one down but it, it was essentially along the lines of you've selected these people and it's interesting because they're the best of the best almost like a council like these are, this is like your council of people. And so I'm just interested is um, what would happen uh, if a falling out like was to occur? Like, would you lose that part of that person? Or do you feel you would actually adopt some of their characteristics and then infuse it into you? And then now you no longer need that part. And I'm only asking because it takes a village um, to find love. Like you have, like, and that comes from, there's a psychotherapist, Esther Peril, who talks about how in romantic relationships, you typically people say like, I want you to be my everything. I want you to be my best friend. I want you to be my lover. I want you to be my trusted confidant. I want you to be all these things in one. That's so exhausting for one person to be. And so what you've done is you've created this council of like, I want you to be this person. I want you to be this person. I want you to do this. And it's extremely healthy, but I'm just, I'm just curious. Cause like when we lose, let's say that person who's our everything, we feel our whole world has crumbled. And then this whole awakening has to take place. We hit rock bottom and that goes back to that conversation we had. Um, and so I'm curious as to find like, if you are woke and you have this council, what is the next step if, if one of those people were to leave and that's more for the viewers because like we all have those best friends that just you lose touch with or now they're you've outgrown them i guess is a way you could mm -hmm. word it or vice versa they've outgrown you so i'm just curious as to know like in your perspective what you would do in those situations the word i was thinking of is impersonate nice <laughs> i well, I think, you, I think you make a few really good points. One of which being that's the fundamental assumption of polyamory, I think. If you really dive deep into polyamory and try to understand the philosophy of it, it's number one, having, having a variety of people that satisfy particular facets of what you desire in the ideal person is creating pillars all over the place rather than having one fundamental pillar that can crumble your entire life. Mm. And so that's, that's more of a romantic perspective on relationships. And that's, uh, 
I think similar to uh, maybe maybe I could relate that to um, but can it not be like like I, like I think of like like my close friends like well since I'm gay it doesn't really work but like um, like if I had a girlfriend I could say like I love them mm-hmm. and like I could marry them like I could mm-hmm. I would want to spend the rest of my life with this person and I'm sure you have like guy friends where you're like oh my god I love this person like you are perfect mm-hmm. but there's no sexual attraction so is it just romantic as you're saying or because I feel like romanticism romanticism I mean sexual mm-hmm. it's more based on intimacy and connection that's romance mm-hmm. well so the, so the way that I was going to equate it was somewhat to polytheism mm-hmm. and having if if and this is this is at the the outskirts of my my philosophical understanding so I'm sure that I'm, I'm wrong in some circumstances but the idea for polyamory and that idea of having one person that satisfies everything that you could wish to desire is also this idea of monotheism and God and having someone that satisfies all of your worldview rather than having a variety of different examples that you could look towards to satisfy a particular worldview at a particular time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's all I'm qualified enough to say about that. But in terms of friendships, I think that when a falling out happens, which it has with, with a few of these friends and a decision has to be made at some point of whether the relationship and what they bring and what you bring to the relationship is worth the hardships that you face with that person. Because with each of those people, I've faced certain hardships. And at the end of the day, I've realized that they're more valuable to me in the position that they're in. And it's more worth it to address the conflict and even friends that I have had falling out with that I'm not as close to as I was before. I always try to address the conflict and find a sense of, I try to find that answer as we talked about earlier, you're trying to find that closure. And a lot of the time it's difficult to re-realize the relationship that you had before, especially if it's based in, if it, I'd say particularly if it's based in emotion, if it's something that's a, they're, they're an emotional person for you. They're someone that you go to when you're feeling sad or you're down, it's really difficult to redevelop that trust. And I think that's a, something that couples who have maybe cheated on each other and try to get back together. I think that though, that's something that they, they find issue with is that it's really difficult to redevelop that trust after someone has has cheated or they've lied to you. I, I would say lying more because I think cheating is the epitome of lying in a relationship. And so when, when someone lies or when someone is out of line with how you see the world and you don't agree with something and that creates a falling out, I think that maybe you, you really have to determine whether that falling out is worth the number one, the conflict and number two, the future of that relationship. And more often than not, I would, I'd I'd probably say yes, because we do have falling outs with people and it's a lot easier to rectify a falling out if you address it as quickly as possible rather than letting it fester. 
because if you let it fester, you put it off to the side and it's not going away anywhere, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and worse and worse and worse. And then it goes back to that mountain where you have to chip that mountain piece by piece until you, until it's small enough to hold hands with again. But even the, the longer you let it fester and the bigger it gets, it's very difficult to hold hands with something that you've, you've, uh, you've taken away from yourself to that extent. Does that make sense? Did I answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Like it. I think for for me, like I think I was asked the same question. I think I always tend to like same thing with cheating perspective. Like you have to ask yourself, like, or tell yourself, like your first, like let's say we were dating. Mm-hmm. And let's say I with Sean Mendez or some other Rob that's current. Um, our first relationship is over. Like mm-hmm. the moment that that betrayal happens, um, our relationship's over. And then the question becomes like, do I want to start a new one with you? And mm-hmm. I think that that is important to see. And I have that conversation. Like I look at friends who I've had falling outs with and you have a falling out and you talked about weighing like the good and the bad and like the harm that it does and the benefit that it gives. But the question becomes, do you want to start a new friendship with them? What, because after this happens or after falling out happens, there's learning that occurs and it's a very fast learning uh, lesson. It's an immediate, like, I did not like that. Never do it again. And then the question becomes, can you live with never doing that again? Or can you live uh, with the thought that you have the potential to do that again? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think for myself, and I've looked at the people that I've lost, and sometimes it's been my fault. And, I, and I, I'll admit that. Like, sometimes it's like, that's a hill I'm going to die on, and I'm, I'm not going to change that part of me because I, I like that part of me. And they're like, well, I don't. And I'm like, well, then this isn't obviously going to work. Um, and it's not a matter of trying to be rude. It's just a matter of like recognizing like that person actually isn't serving you the way that it's meant to. So interesting perspective. I think, yeah, like I think the reason why I'm at, I wanted to ask was because like, I feel like our friends are always in flux. And because mm-hmm. like we have new friends that come and go as we evolve. And like, I look at those people from my, where I grew up and they still live there and they're still friends with the same friends that we were friends with when we were nine years old and I can't help but think to myself why like why why you know like I understand if you carry a friend along the way and you've both been doing crazy things but like when you've lived with this person your whole life and you spend your whole life with them and you're still living with them and you still aren't doing anything what value does that person bring to your life? One, because why would a friend ever let you settle for average, right? Mm-hmm. And the second question is, why would you, you as yourself ever settle for average? Like, I think I have, I remember high school graduation, you're like, I love you, we're gonna stay together forever. And then I only talked to one person. I had a graduating class of a thousand kids. And I talked to one. That's mm-hmm. less, that's zero point zero or 0.1% of the people I graduated with. I'm a math teacher here. I don't want to embarrass myself. Um, it's a, 
it's 0.1% of people that I still talk to from my graduating year in high school. That was like 10 years ago. And it's, that's scary because now I look at people like, like Danielle, I used her as an example already. I'll use her again. She's not ready, allowed to leave yet. If that makes sense. Yeah. Even though I, like if we think of it from the opposite perspective, like she's finishing her PhD, she's going to do research, she's going to be a prof, she's going to do all these amazing, wonderful things, start her own business. And I'm thinking like, am I now the one holding her back? Am I the person that was here, you know? So it's also like mm-hmm. understanding the opposite perspective. Like your friends are gaining something from you. But what happens when your resources are depleted that you offer them, right? Because they could easily leave you and it not have anything to do with what they bring for you, right? So mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm struggling. Well, I'm not struggling, but I have friends who struggle with that. Cause like I've recently had to let a friend go and I just be like, you're not, you're not adding to this anymore. And I understand the role that I play in your life. Um, but it's not symbiotic. And so I, my question for you is like, what do you do in those situations where you, you feel like they're leeching off you? That's a very intense um, yeah analogy but do you know what I mean like where Mm -hmm. it's very one-sided and you're happy to do it because you love them and you Mm -hmm. care about them a lot but at the end of the day like there is no benefit coming for you so what is your stance on that do you stay do you go do you what do you do well firstly I really like the idea that you put forward of starting a new relationship with someone particularly in the example of lying or cheating in a relationship are you ready to start a new relationship so just wanted to acknowledge that. I thought that was really cool. I'm going to adopt that a little bit. <laughs> and to address the question you just asked, I'm not super confrontational. And I, I try to make my intentions with people as evident as, and as straightforward as I can right from the beginning. I think that I, I, think that I put off a, a general vibe where people kind of know where I'm coming from. And some, I think sometimes it's, it's tough because you, sometimes people are entrenched in your life to some extent. You're on a team with someone and you can't, you, you can't hate someone that you're on a team with and if you don't respect them. And so there are people that to some extent you're entrenched with, whether it's someone that's in the same friend group as you, so you're going to be seeing them regularly. So there are a bunch of caveats to the question, but I'll try to address the question itself. I think that there's a natural selection for friends where you let each other die off. And a part of that is the social relationship that you develop with them, where if I'm not super receptive to someone or if someone isn't super receptive to me, I don't, I don't pursue something because I don't feel that it comes naturally. And it's something that I realized a few years ago with girls where if, if a girl doesn't jive with you or you don't jive with a girl, it's not anyone's fault. It's not that you're not good enough to some extent, because obviously we could always be better. And maybe if you had a chiseled six pack or had an IQ of 150 or any of these other things, then maybe she would have liked you, but it's not, it it just doesn't work. Sometimes it's just not a thing of, 
it's not a, like you're not always a victim. I think that's maybe the best way to put it. You're not a, a victim of the circumstances in that. I'll keep using this example for me. I, when I was younger, I was always like, ah, oh, why don't girls like me? This kind of sucks. I'm pretty cool. And then as I got older, I realized some people just don't, some people just don't jive. Some people just were, were dancing different dances. And I was going on a few dates with a girl and I told my friend about her. She was like, whoa, she seems super cool. She is super cool. And, and she became less responsive and less responsive. And, and then I ran into my friend again a few days later and her other friend was there with her. And she asked me how it was going with the girl. And I said, eh, does, she just doesn't seem into it, which is totally okay. It's beyond okay to have, to be somewhat prejudicial, even though that word's been a little bit politicized, but it's okay to be prejudicial of someone. You have the right to decide who you want to spend your time with and who you don't. And the faster that you can take the subtle uh, social cues and social hints that they aren't into you, then the easier that makes your life. And the, the more extremely you victimize yourself and say, well, they don't like me because of this. They don't like me because of that. Then that just, I think that that's very mentally damaging to be in that mentality of, of being the victim of someone because of just who you are. And so in going back to the realm of friendship, I think that friends just weed themselves out naturally. I have lots of friends that I've been friends with throughout my entire life and they stick around because they haven't weeded themselves out or I haven't weeded myself out of their life because we, we still drive together. We still get along really well and we can talk. And anytime we do see each other, we talk for several hours and there are people that maybe I thought I'd be friends with for the rest of my life that I never talk to anymore. Or even in some cases I've had particularly negative experiences with that. I don't have an answer for, I don't have closure for I'm, I'm human in that sense. And sometimes that's my fault. And so I think it's important to realize that not all people get along together, but it is important to respect each other. I agree. So how, like what's bad, like batting in my head right now is my friends and I, I kind of have a talk with, with all of them about it is we talk about unconditional love. Mm -hmm. friends and, and unconditional love literally means there are no conditions it's like you, you don't have to do anything for me I don't have to do anything for you but I just love you and I know you love me and I feel a lot of people fall victim to setting like expectations onto a friendship or a relationship and then that causes that unconditional love to be broken um, like I'm thinking, for example, I have a friend and, um, we agreed on unconditional love, but I was like, you need to text me at least like once a month to let me know you're alive. Like, why are you like, like, are you there? And I know if I was to ever see this person, it would be a good time and we'd get along and we'd have a jolly old happy, happy moment. Um, but at the same time, it's like when I reach out um there's no response but also when they reach out there's no response um but i get upset when there's no response on my end but don't feel remorseful when i don't respond to them and i think it's it's interesting because 
we talk about unconditional love being like this like fantastic thing. But at the end of the day, like, is it? Like, does love need conditions? Or does love need a little bit of expectations or output in order to maintain a relationship? Like, what's that video game where Sims, mm-hmm. you know, how, like you have to like feed them, you have to like, give them the social interaction, give them like all these things that they need to, to live a life. And Cause there are people who I won't talk to for years. I'm sure you have these people as well, but you would never like think that you're not friends with them anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you know, they're always there, but you don't talk to them every day. But you also don't expect them to talk to. We also have people who you talk to daily or even weekly. Um, and it's almost like that's what they're for. So I'm curious to know, like, is it possible to have unconditional love? Or is there always supposed to be a little bit of a little bit of expectation to maintain that its flow? Right? Because we talk about our progressions that we're making in our life and where they are in their life and how that's motivation, but shouldn't there be some output coming from people in order for something to be sustainable? What do you think? I am not a father yet, so I don't believe in unconditional love. (laughs) I, I do think that's where it's born is in the parents. That's my, that's my, maybe I'm a little bit more nihilistic about this. I think that unconditional love is born for your child. And there are a few other people in the world that can harbor that responsibility of unconditional love. Mm -hmm. I know that there are things that my friends could do. And I, and I would, I, I seriously would love to believe in unconditional love because I think that it's such a positive philosophy to hold. And I would love to think that I could do anything in my relationships with my friends and still have them love me. And maybe to some extent they would love me, but not support me in my endeavor. Mm. Maybe maybe it's a love for an older me that still lives in their heart, but they know that I'm a little bit different. And I don't think that I would, I don't think that I would dislike them anymore if they, if they did stop loving me for things that I do that are counter to their moral philosophy or conscious philosophy. So if I were to, if I were to do horrible things, I wouldn't expect for people to continue to love me. I think that there's some responsibility that we place on ourselves in relationships and my relationships with the people that I have relationships with. There is some, there is some expectation. And like I said, I think it's a, a nihilistic perspective maybe and i really wish that someone could maybe talk me out of it because that would be cool to to believe that everything is love all the time but we do have expectations for our friends mm-hmm. and as we just talked about if they don't meet these expectations or if someone doesn't meet an expectation and they're now a a weed of your life you do have to uproot them and if they're not if they're not contributing to your betterment, if they're not pushing you or say you have a friend that they've been a great friend for your entire life and then something happens to them. And every time that you try to celebrate something, they shove it back down your throat and they can't celebrate for you. Mm -hmm. And anytime that you have something bad happen, 
they also shove that down your throat and they can't just hold your hand and let you let you cry on their shoulder. So I'm not sure that I could unconditionally love my friends because of that, because I know that my friends are the people and they're, they're my friends for those reasons. They're my friends because I can tell them what I've achieved and they can celebrate it with me. And then five minutes later they can say, okay, what's next? And I, they're also the friends that I've cried on their shoulders multiple times and vented my heart out to them. And I don't think they would, be my friends if we didn't have that dynamic and that relationship of being able to talk about everything and having such open and broad communication. And the more that you, the more that you cut that up. So the less, the less yourself you can be with your friends. I think that brings back on the love because it's a, there's some aspect of self love in friendships is that you have to be able to be yourself while also loving yourself in a friendship. And if you can no longer do that, you no longer love yourself. And therefore I don't think it's possible to love your friends unconditionally. Well said. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I mean, unconditional love was something that was like used in religion a lot too. Like the mm -hmm. only person you can love the most is God and um, the love of a child. But even then, like some people have abused that privilege of um, unconditional love. My thing I wrote down um, that I want to talk to you about is, um, a lot of people and like you and I, like we've talked about like staying woke and like how much we've progressed as people and, um, how much we've changed over time. And it's really hard to convince people how you've changed. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, I still, I know there are people out there who are like that guy, that guy's a teacher now or it'd be like that guy's nice like and it's like yeah like the 2009 Andre isn't the 2021 Andre and I think mm. it's really interesting how people hold on to that like I have an ex uh who recently just came back into my life not like romantically but just like popped up and was hitting on a friend of mine and it was it was almost humorous because I was like um I was right beside them while they were messaging each other and we were having a good time and I got brought up by him and he was like oh he's he never listens to people he only thinks about himself he's a compulsive liar mm. he um never speaks his mind he's like he wasn't comfortable with his sexuality and like was saying all these things about me which were true probably 12 years ago 10 12 years ago and it was really interesting because a part of me was like, how dare you? But also it was like, at the same time, it was like, you're actually not wrong because that is the Andre you know. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so I find it's been hard in my life when I think of like being an athlete. I wasn't necessarily the best athlete. Like I, I won awards and I did my job as a, as a team player and I achieved success from that. But it was interesting because like, I was never like the best. Like I wasn't like a national team, all-star like player, but I still got the recognition that I needed. And so when I was winning like ACAC All-Conference and um, Academic All-Canadian and stuff like that, it was like, they're like, Andre, how? And then it's like, well, you actually don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. And then now it's like, um, when I think of like the self-growth that occurred 
after like my whole meditation and finding yoga and going through all that stuff, it's really interesting to see how people still think you are that person. Like I know, for example, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say on the show, but like you were blacklisted from going to a certain event. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was like, I know that's not who you are, but like mm-hmm. the perception of who you were in that moment was correct for that person does that make sense who like made that decision and it's like whereas the whole world outside is like that's actually not who this person is and it's and so it's really interesting how you're battling like your your past while you're refining your future and so um that's kind of like a little teaser about me but um i'm just i'm finding it difficult as a as a person to be like because you can you'll reconnect them they always pop back up in your life like you'll see someone at the grocery store like car wash or something and they're like hey bob i haven't seen you in 10 years and they're like oh are you still um dropped out of college and you're like no i have a degree now and i'm smart um so it's like it's really interesting or like you met someone once at a party and you're like that guy's crazy but they're actually like the most down-to-earth person so mm-hmm. how do you break out of that stereotype like or do you just not care no that's a really good question i think the the best way that i could compile that whole ideology is i believe this is a quote from ram das that i got from randy is that you're always enlightened until you spend time with your family. (laughs) So for me, anytime I go back home to my dad's place, it took me about, I think even still, but it took me about three or four years for them to go, Oh wow. Josh isn't 16 years old anymore. I think that I was that 16 year old and maybe stuck in that 17, 18 year old because I moved out when I was, yeah, I had just turned 18 and never really lived at home after that. And so I was always stuck in that, that area of perception in their mind. And this is more conceptual, but I wonder how much of their development influence how, influences how they see you. Because I think that I've grown significantly over these past few years. I was a underachieving kid who was really into athletics and then going into my last year of university I was uh, light flex on the dean's list and ended up going and playing professionally volleyball and teaching and doing all these other things and taking on responsibility and so that was an area that people couldn't have seen me excel at had they been asked at any point probably prior to my Achilles rupture and kind of seeing me go through that development and A part of that is I think some people have the capacity to change themselves and to increase their capacity dramatically. And some people don't and whether, whether or not it's the, their innate capability or their intrinsic drive or the external forces that motivate them to change. Some people are stuck in high school. Some Mm -hmm. people you're going to meet people that are stuck in high school and they're not going to change for their entire lives. There are some people that are going to go through several dramatic changes in their lives and go from 15 year old moves out. And one day he ends up having a PhD and there are going to be those people that go through these, these cyclical rebirths. And, and it is a rebirth. It really is where at one point you're one person 
and at another point you're completely someone else and for people that go through a lot of those rebirths and that that process of the hero's journey whatever you want to call it a lot of it is going up and down and finding yourself and establishing yourself and then having that person that you become be someone that you no longer want to be anymore or maybe I wouldn't put it that way but there's someone else further away from you that you wish to become and so you're consistently chasing this ideal version of yourself whereas I think for some people the ideal version of themselves is sitting right beside them on the couch and they see no need to to get out of it so I would be interested to know what someone's perception of their personal rebirths are in relation to yours because anytime that I see someone that has that I haven't seen in a really long time I'm always wondering who they've become because I know that that's possible to become someone else and to completely change yourself and to become the best version of yourself and to continue chasing that because at some point you pass the best version of yourself and you achieve that and then there's someone past that so you're you're consistently going through this heaven and hell process while you're climbing this ladder and consistently hitting a more ideal version of yourself every time you climb. And so I would wonder what, how many times that that person has changed. And I think that as people get older, they change less and less and less. We're much more malleable as we're young. So I know that it was a, it was a real difficulty for my dad to realize that I had changed because I don't think that he was changing significantly during that time. So understanding that people can change is not only a social experience, but a personal experience. Mm -hmm. How much can an individual change and how much you think an individual can change has a direct relationship to how much you can change and how much you've seen yourself change. So I think the people that have changed the most in their lives are much more empathetic to another individual's ability to change and to become a different person. Mm -hmm. I think it's like that balance between like rebirth and death like there has to be like some kind of death of who you were as a person and um and i think that's interesting to think of too like with this person is like who i was when i was with that person has now died and i love that you use the word rebirth because that is something like it's so accurate you're like oh i didn't do this right and then it's almost like we have nine lives you know like mm-hmm. we're uh you can choose to kill that off that person metaphorically speaking, obviously, um, and uh, like have yourself reborn. I think of like when I went to Medicine Hat, um, my legal name is Joseph, but I go by Andre because um, my mom called me Andre and it's like this big ordeal, but my legal name is Joseph. And when I went to Medicine Hat, I didn't want to be Andre anymore. Like I wanted to be Joseph. So when I went to Medicine Hat, I had the whole team, coaches, school, like my transcript all said Joseph in the ACAC league, like my name was Joseph. And everyone called me Joey. And it was like, that was my nickname. And then the one time and I, and I think you had a moment when this happened for you too. And that's why I'm touching on it is because when I brought Medicine Hat to Edmonton, or people from Medicine Hat to Edmonton, because those are like my two homes, there was this clash that happened. And it, it was happening, like, they're like, Andre's so cool. And they're like, actually, Andre's boring. And they're like, or Andre loves to do this. And they're like, actually, he doesn't do that at all. He likes this. And, um, and both of them are right, because one, I was living my truth. I was living my truth as Joseph in Medicine Hat. 
And I was so lucky to do that because I kind of left behind Edmonton to find this rebirth in Medicine Hat. And so people were calling me Joey, some were calling me Andre, and they're like, who's Andre? Who's Joey? And it was like this, like, and I was just observe, like sitting and observing it all. And I was like, I did this. <laughs> and it was like, it was so cool because each of them had their perspective as to who I was as a person. Um, but ultimately, when, when I sat back and just looked at it all, and that's exactly what happens in meditation. Do you want to take a step back and just see um, what is actually there? And so when I took that step back, I realized that I actually created both. Like when I was in Edmonton, I thought it was like, oh, people just hate me. And it was like all these things that people are creating about me. But in actuality, like it was me who created that persona. And it was me who created this persona. And that clash was interesting because that is when I realized like I'm the pilot of my own life. I'm the one who gets to choose how you view who I am. So I always crack the joke, like when I get together with my girls, and when I say girls, I mean my gays. When I get together with my gays, like you'll see me and you'll be like, holy crap, Andre is this like flamboyant, like queen. I don't call anyone queen. When I'm with my gays, I'm like, yes, queen. You'll never hear me say that anywhere else except for now. And it's like, it's so interesting because in that moment, I want to be that person. And I, and, but it's still authentic because that's still a part of who I am. Like I've embraced that gay side of me. Or when I come to, to teach, like I'm a person in authority, but I'm also never crossing that I'm your friend gap and maintaining that distance no matter how interested i am in these kids stories or vice versa like you have to be very distant and then with close friends you want just there is no border it's like you just feed and feed and feed and feed until you um you're satiated and i think that has been really interesting to see is like the persona i choose to be in each of those environments and but still have to make up a whole which is me and so um I'm interested because I know you've had a couple of moments like that where you've seen the clash of your two worlds kind of combine and you're like, wow. And so I was just wondering if you've ever had like a moment of realization similar to that. Yeah. So in, when I went to Asia, I experienced a lot of different names uh, because a lot of, a lot of Asian languages don't have the, the J phoneme, the sound for J and same within in Spanish languages or in Latin languages, a lot of the time I was Yeshua or like Joseph. People just call me like Joseph or Yeshua. And I would always introduce myself as Joshua. And I felt that there was a, there was a, a sense of rebirth in that where your name is very identifying. And it's interesting that you went from Andre to Joseph because that was a way in which you, encapsulated a different persona of yourself and you created someone else based on this foundation of Joseph and who Joey is and who's, who's Joseph and who is Andre. So you had this ability to really recreate yourself. And that's something that I've found really, I've thought about this for a while now. I'm super glad you brought it up because I think it's a really cool area of personality is when people decide to travel to find themselves. I've always found that to be a very interesting term because you, you know who you are and I mean, you are who you are. And sometimes it, there's a dynamic between the community that you're within and who you are. Sometimes you want to be different from who the community sees you as. So 
when people go traveling, it's not necessarily that they're finding themselves, but they're allowed to create themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing when you go to a different university, you leave your small town and you go to, let's say for me, I go to, from Calgary to Thompson rivers. I was less solidified in who I was personally. So I think I was just thrown in and it was way more chaotic because I, I didn't really know who I was, but I had this opportunity to build myself. And so I was very different from who I would have been ideally, maybe if I were to, to build someone that say this person has the utmost moral attitude and all of these other things. I, I think things happen too fast to develop that version of myself. And, and so when I went to Asia, I was, I think, able to do that a little bit more. And then when you go away, you have this opportunity to experience yourself in a new light and know who you could be if you just allowed yourself to be. And then from there, you can bring that back and incorporate that into who you were then. And so I had lots of friends. It was something that happened a lot. I, I'm, I, I would say I'm a, I'm a very true ambivert. So I'm somewhere between introvert and extrovert and I can be very extroverted and I really derive energy from people. And then at the same time, I'm very introverted. And I would say that now I'm much more introverted than I'm extroverted, but I still love going into that extrovert side of myself and I can, I can really pull energy from both of those. And coming back from Asia, I'd spent so much time alone, whether it be through meditation or just traveling and, there was a point where I don't think I, well, I definitely didn't speak for 10 days or 11 days, but the, when I first got there, I, I hadn't spoke for five days. And first thing I was able to speak to someone, I really jumped on the occasion. They were speaking Spanish in a bar and I started speaking Spanish and ran over to them. And so that was, that was fun because there was a, a call to my extroversion. But when I came back from Asia, I was much more introverted and much more willing to accept my introversion. And there were lots of people that I was mutual friends with that I hadn't seen in a while. And I would go and sit with them at a game or something. And they would say to me, Hey, people, people say you've really changed. Like you're way different than you were before you left. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel different, but I think that was an incorporation of who I had become over there into who I now, or who I became over there and who I was before I left. So it was a marriage of those two things and the expectations that people had devised for me in my previous role had now married who I had found and who I had become elsewhere. I think that's like a form of reincarnation on its own. Mm -hmm. It's like we talk about death and rebirth, but it's also like there is stuff that crosses over. Like there is like, like, for example, like I think of who I am as a friend was still synonymous in Edmonton as it was in Medicine Hat. Um, and I carried that over because I liked that trait within myself. And I love how you said create a new, like a new self. You're not finding yourself. You're just like creating who you want to be. And the environment is so stuck with that. I always encourage people, like the moment I was able to travel, Josh, and by travel, I mean, I like went to Hawaii once, but still, it was love like, it. yeah. Um, I remember like, because I grew up, we weren't very wealthy, but I remember we'd go to Calgary and I would just see this whole other city and like the Deerfield was crazy as like a 15 year old kid. You're like, wow, what is this road? Yeah. Um, and, and you're like, are these people drunk? Like, what is going on? And it's just like, but in Calgary, like, that's a norm. Like now when I go to Deerfoot, I'm like, <laughs> you know, I just like, 
And it's like, that was like a culture shock from Edmonton to Calgary alone. And then I can't even imagine what that was like in Asia, like, and just like being immersed in like the culture and, and the way of life. And like, you have to be comfortable with yourself to do something like that. And mm-hmm. you have to like have difficult conversations with yourself and with others, like while you do it. I a good friend of mine went to Australia for, he said six months I'll be gone six months he was gone a year and a half like he just stayed he's like I'm not done yet and I'm Mm -hmm. like yes you are get back here (laughs) um and it was just like but now like the person he is now that he's back is like he's like like thank god because he um and I know he wouldn't care that I mentioned this because he's um he's a queen now but uh when uh when he came back like he was like officially out of the closet he came out to his parents like he like came out to all of his friends a lot he lost a lot of friends kept some more and just became like this huge advocate for like the lgbtq community and just repurposed who he was as a person because he came from Redcliffe, alberta so just outside of medicine hat and then now he's like just like this little icon of like a joy and like he's always smiling and that was so different than who he was before. Like he had a goatee when goatees weren't even a thing, still aren't a thing. And it was just like, he came back, like shaved his face even. And it's like those little things, like he was holding onto the goatee because that was a symbol of like masculinity for him. And it was like a conversation starter and um, misogynistic men like respected the goatee or like the mustache or like the, in gay terms, we call it a beard when you have like a fake girlfriend. It's like a way to make yourself become more masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really interesting how he like let go of all of that. And so like that was like a, a death and a rebirth all in one, but also like he was still him. And mm-hmm. I think that is like something remarkable is when you're able to like almost like reincarnate yourself. And I see that within you too. Like I look at like I know Josh, I have videos that pop up in my timeline of us like doing shots. And I'm like, where is this? And I think it's like a random house. And I don't even know where it is. And I'm just like, okay. And then I also have memories of us like coaching kids together. And those are two very different environments that we've put each other in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a picture of when I watched you play when you were in Edmonton. I think, I don't know if you was at McEwen or U of A, I can't remember. Um, and I have a picture like with you after the game. And it was like, these are like snapshots of like different moments. And each time, both of us look incredibly different. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, and it's like physically and like you can just tell mentally, you know, when you look at someone and you're like, that person's not happy. You see a photo of them. You're like, they're smiling, but you know, they're not smiling. It was like, it was like, I was watching both of us just like in this like spectrum and thank God for Facebook memories for that reason. It's like, you can like see those moments of growth. And, mm-hmm. and we talked about earlier, like how social media can be like a disservice, but there is like that beauty in that stuff of like being able to track someone's successes. And I think that's something that, that I love most about you is like, we don't talk every day. Um, but I have an incredibly amount of respect and love for you and the things that you're doing within this world and for yourself. And, and there's been nothing that could tarnish that. And I think that is something that's allowed me to almost like keep tabs on you. Like we have those friends we keep tabs on. Now we call it creeping on social media, but I call it keeping tabs. Cause like you want to know what this person's doing, like where you send them a hello or a message or something. And I think, um, 
I think that's like where we find wealth within the relationships that we create is like you've invested in this person. And I'm not saying I will really invested in you, although I put some stuff in you and you've put some stuff in me. Um, and I think that's something remarkable. I have a picture of us eating like pho together in Calgary. Like, and it was like, and it's mm-hmm. just like, awesome. yeah. Yeah. And it is like these moments. And I'm like, those are moments of joy that I've kept like in my like box of joy, I guess you could remember. Mm-hmm. And I think like we do that with people is like we keep those moments of joy for things that excite us in order to like keep on going. And so um, like I think of your trip of Asia, like you had a lot of regrowth there, but it was also like who you actually were already. But now you're just like fine tuning and refining that. And I think that was like remarkable to see out of you because that was also happening at a time when I was also going through that personally. So it was like. I'm not alone in this. Like there's other people who are doing this. And it was just like, it was so remarkable to see, like I actually got to witness you like before, during and after all of that. And like the mess and like the the neatness, but also like the joy that came out of all of that. And I, so I just wanted to give you that little passage of love there because I, it's not easy to do. And anyone watching this, like I also, who's gotten this far, I'm not sure who's gotten this far, <laughs> but if you've gotten this far, like there are people in your life that you've seen through like the good, the bad and the ugly and chances are they're still there. And the reason why is because you've seen it all. And now, you know, that's been an authentic experience that they've had and you've been a part of. So like breakups, for example, there are some guys who I could probably I should probably call and say thank you for dumping me as bad as you did because now you've made me who I am and there's also people who I've broken up with and I'm like I ruined your life holy crap and just like that I should call and say sorry but I also know like because that relationship was so toxic they've also found growth from it and so I don't know. I think like that's such a fascinating thing to explore as well as like where you were also wrong and and genuine and and rude and defiant is like you've also gave that person on the receiving end now a way to grow themselves. So you grow by making good decisions, but you have other people grow by making bad decisions, learning from your mistakes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how there's actually no negative when it comes to that. I I do wonder what you think about that. And I guess you've kind of, you've just alluded to it and answered my question in one swift blow is that the, the, I think it would be a disservice to eliminate suffering from people's lives Mm -hmm. because we do learn so much from that suffering. And that's one of the things that drive us. And that's why we have memory is not to remember the good things, but to remember the bad things so that we don't do them again. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a really a very salient point that a lot of people overlook. And that's one of the epidemics I see with lawnmower parents. I've heard that's the new term for it is parents that try to get everything out of the way of their kid before they run into it so that they never, they never run into anything that could be negative or cause suffering to them. But that suffering is the the reason that we live. And one thing I wanted to ask you about the, your experience, but, from the lens of your friend where how much do you think that honest conversation with other people 
influences who you become. So when you meet someone that you've never met before and you're likely never going to meet them again, you can have a very honest and open conversation with them that maybe you've never had with anyone else. You can, there are people in Asia that I hung out with and talked to that I was able to open up to about things that I had never opened up to anyone else about. And they were towards the outer limits of my own psyche. So I wasn't exactly sure of them until I had said them. And once I said them, I realized the truth of it. And so I wonder what your perspective is on that of having deep and honest conversations with people where you can explore the outsides of your thought. I think, yeah, I, I think it's taking an inside thought and bringing it outward. And I think a lot of the times we have anxiety because we're holding on to something we wanted to say or didn't say or are afraid to ask or afraid to do. Or, um, and I think that's what it comes down to is like, I don't like having anxiety attacks anymore. Like, I just don't like it. And so like, I think of like every summer we go cliff jumping at camps, like, you know, like, and I've been at camps for nine years and it's like, and every time I get scared and I don't know why, you would never know. Like, you don't know what goes through my head. Like I go to the shop, I'm like, you can't jump. Oh, and now I'm at the top. I'm like, no, you go first. It's fine. It's your first time. Whereas actually I'm dying inside. And the funny thing is, is like, I've created that fear over and over again for the sake of getting the excitement again. And it's like, it's because like, I, I still don't think I can. And I proved to myself that I can't. So I've just created a victory by taking that jump anyway. Um, but when it comes to like having those tough con- or honest conversations, it's not an honest conversation. It's a tough conversation mm-hmm. and people don't do them because they're tough. And, and I think that's, what makes or breaks a lot of people is I can safely say I've, I'm really good at having tough conversations. And, and that's because I don't want to beat around the bush or fabricate anything because I want it to be as pungent and authentic as it is. But at the same time, it has to be tough uh, or not tough. It has to be forceful is the wrong word as well. It has to be like, very straightforward, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. Authentically painful. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's going to be hard. And it's like, you're going to say something, but everything you're going to say is true, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's like, when there's truth rooted in what you're saying, it can't be offensive. Or it it can't be received as offensive. Like, I remember someone told me, someone... I'm trying to think back to the depths of all the things I've erased from my memory. Um, <laughs> like I remember like compulsive liar. Someone told me like I was a compulsive liar. And in that moment I said, no. And I was, and I was like, so I was lying about being a compulsive liar. And the only reason why I was offended is because it was true. It was like someone just called me out on something that was tough. Or even like this year, like teaching, like I've had to have, my teacher partner and I, like I'd say we have two of the toughest classes in this whole school. Like most classes probably have one or two kids. We have six in each class. And we, we I call her my work wife and we work together because we, um, we have tough conversations and they're very honest and they're very straightforward. Volleyball is like that too. Like you have to say a lot in four seconds before that next serve comes. So it's usually like pass the ball and it comes off like rude but it's like you do you need to pass the ball or like 
um, in conversations here, they're like, did you call home to this parent and say this? And I'm like, yes, I did. And it's like, so the honesty around it becomes irrelevant if you can't have those tough conversations because the honesty comes out by doing something that makes you uncomfortable and doing something that's challenging. Um, otherwise it just gets sidetracked and it becomes fluffy and you don't actually get to the point, right? Like how are you supposed to mend a relationship if you can't talk honestly about the tough things that you're unhappy with? Well, I really like that point that you made about someone saying something that makes you feel uncomfortable, but harbors in it a seed of truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens a lot to people. That definitely happens to me. And it was something that, the Randy actually called me out for at one point is that someone said something to me and I went away and said, Oh, that's bullshit. That person's an idiot. That's not true at all. And he said, well, if, if it's not true, then you'll know, then you'll come to find that it's not true, but don't dismiss it immediately. You have to, you have to actually search and see if that's true. And so that was something that I had to do and it turned out to be somewhat true. Friends with Randy? Like where is this Randy? I think everyone should be friends with Randy. <laughs> I have a, I have a deal with him that once we reach episode 42, he'll do a podcast with me. So that's the only real reason that I'm still doing podcasts is just so that I can have one with Randy. Love it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. Yeah. Like you take time, take the, take the time, honestly, like there's no point in reacting. That's exactly what it is. Like now, even like I look at kids and parents, like parent teacher interviews were a breeze this year and I barely said anything. And the reason why is because these parents want to tell you everything, every everything, everything, everything. And so you just listen. And then you just listen and listen and listen. And if I was to like react or say something, that just sparks more conversation. Let them finish. Let you internalize and hear and listen to what's actually being said. Um, and then respond accordingly. And I and I like the podcast that I watch with you with other people is you do that. Like you sit there, you listen. And you don't respond immediately, you wait and then you're like, yes, everything you said, I have this come back. And it's like, that is effective communication is like listening and holding on to the things that are of value and then responding to those things of value, not the irrelevant things. And that's kind of how I teach like reading comprehension. I'm like, what is this thing trying to say to you? Um, or like, um, I think of like the Bible, for example, I don't want to get too religious, but my summary of the bible is don't be an asshole that's pretty much what it uh -huh. is yeah like they have all these stories of like what makes you a character who did what and, and they're all beautiful very very beautiful tales and stories that are shared and at the end of the day they're just trying to mold you into being a good person and a lot of religions are like that school is trying to mold you to be a contributed member to society and you talked about um not repeating the past. And that's exactly what social studies is. Like I hated social studies. And I was like, oh, this is so boring. And then I had a social studies prof. It took till university, Josh, who was like, all they're trying to do is explain to you what happened before so it doesn't happen again. And so that you know what happened because of what happened. And so that you don't do that. And I was like, oh, okay. Like we talk about control, for example, like we can't control our friends, right? They're their own person. And sometimes we want to, oh, come do this with me, do this for me. Hey, can you do this for me? And like, you're controlling them. Slavery ended years ago. 
That's exactly what you're doing. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a trait of slavery. I need you to do this for me, no questions asked. And it's like, mm-hmm. we know how bad slavery was. And it's like, we do that to our friends. Do this for me. Hey, if you love me, you'll do this. They don't want to do that, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know. I have a lot of a appreciation for like that kind of perspective on education and relationships is like the way they feed and elevate and prevent those mistakes in the future, you know? Mm-hmm. Listen and respond. Yeah, yes. that's my that's my method of pulling as much as I can out from people. I, I've, I've actually got really frustrated when I listen to people talk in podcasts and they're completely talking over each other. That's where that came from. I try to <laughs> wait until an idea is fully fleshed out because I've found that people really strike gold towards the end of what they're saying and mm-hmm. allowing them to continue and tangent into themselves. I think that people really hit a stride. And so I, I relinquish mm-hmm. control of a conversation and tend to. Yeah. That's why I said, like I wrote stuff down because I didn't want to interrupt you. So I'm like, I'm going to bring this up later. And it's like, that's how I work like with kids, with adults, with, and it's just like stuff you have to say is so valuable, you know? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Do you want to stop there? Sure. I'm going to, I'm going to hit stop and then I'll just ask you to do a few things. Well, I'm going to tell you to do a few things because I control you. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Bye guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot, Andre.